Support for this episode of A Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 158, The International Exhibition of Sherlock Holmes. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a chronicler. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. Your Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, well, welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And uh, uh, Konnichiwa, or uh, Guten Tag, or um, Bienvenidos. Uh, how, how should I address you in this international episode, Bert? Oh, Sir Arthur uh, Conan Konnichiwa. Okay, fair enough. Well, we are going to be delving into a show that has been making its way around the world over the last four or five years called the International Exhibition of Sherlock Holmes. And it's more than just advising you that it exists. We are actually going to dive into the exhibition itself with the curator and uh, one of the co-creators, the people that actually brought it to life and um, kind of explore with them what went into doing that. You know, how do you mount an exhibition of this size and scope and then roll it out worldwide? We'll be right back with more information uh, and conversation from them. But first, just a reminder that the show notes for this episode can be found at iHose.co slash iHose158. You can find all of the offerings of IHearOfSherlock.com at that site. You can sign up for email updates. You can subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you do so that you get notified on the podcast player of your choice that we have a new episode. And we'll have new episodes on the 15th and 30th of every month as always. You can find us also on the three main social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are I Hear of Sherlock on all of those. Now, a word from our sponsor. In the ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex, we spend the winter by the fire, reading fairy tales to our children by Wilhelm Grimm, the younger of the brothers Grimm, who died on December 16, 1859. But you won't be frightened out of your wits. 
not when you get a copy of Baker Street Reveries, Sherlockian Writings 2006-2016 to by Leslie S. Klinger. This successor to Baker Street Rambles covers everything from Sherlockian erotica to the hitherto lost correspondence between Conan Doyle and John Watson. New for 2018, this book is available right now at wessexpress.com. It will soon be upon us, the bleak midwinter when frosty wind makes moan and earth stands hard as iron, water like a stone, when snow is falling, snow on snow. What better time to put a log on the fire and reach for a new book from the Wessex Press? Choose yours today. Well, that is a a grim tale indeed. (laughs) Yes, well, it's these little anniversaries, you know, that, that mean so much to the folks over there in that wonderful, bucolic, and now slightly chilly ancient kingdom of Wessex. Well, we are pleased to be joined by Amy Noble Seitz and Jeffrey Curley, who have both been significantly involved with the development of the international exhibition of Sherlock Holmes. Amy is the founder and CEO of Exhibits Development Group, which is a a team that develops and distributes and manages these international traveling museum exhibitions. And you may have been to some of her other expositions, which include Beyond Rubik's Cube, uh, Mythbusters, the explosive exhibition, uh, Cut, Costume and Cinema, Galileo, Worst Case Scenario, A Dragon's Quest, and much more. And Amy uh, joins us from Minneapolis. And we also have Jeffrey Curley who is the principal of uh, Jeffrey M. Curley and Associates, among the finest talent in museum research and entertainment industries. And if you sample their work, they really run the gamut from uh, blockbuster films to experimental theater uh, and even more. Uh, They've got original composition from award-winning Broadway composers and musicians. Uh, They've got writing from Edgar Award-winning authors and Washington Post journalists, uh, education expertise direct from the classroom, and media produced by documentary filmmakers from the History Channel, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic. Amy and Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, this is this is an exciting show for us because it's very rare that we get an opportunity to go and explore uh, some of the physical attributes of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, not all of us are lucky enough to live in London where the Sherlock Holmes Museum uh, is, is housed or the Sherlock Holmes Pub. Uh, so having an exhibition like this is fantastic. We're going to get into all of that with you momentarily. But why don't we start out where we start with all of our guests, which is to ask you where you first encountered Sherlock Holmes. Why don't we start with you, Amy? My very first encounter would have been about sixth grade. Um, I was into all sorts of wonderful mysteries, uh, uh, books, of course, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And I think I had my first taste of Sherlock Holmes when I was about 12 or 13. And and what kind of impressions did it leave on you at the time? 
What kind of impressions that leave on me? Um, you know, I don't know if there was any strong impressions. I was just, my girlfriends and I were very much into um, crime solving and mysteries. And I do remember we all played a different role. And I know I didn't get to be a woman. And it was, I think, Lestrade I got to play. Um, the smart one, of course, Sandy Hopperman played Sherlock. And the cute Jody Hinson played um, Irene. So I think I was Lestrade. Doesn't that make sense, Jeffrey? I, I, it would make sense. Um, but uh, you know, I would always see you as the smart one. You could be Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's impressive that you stuck with with it after all these years, Amy, after being branded as Lestrade so early on. So good for you. <laughs> I, I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> now, how about you, Jeffrey? When When did you first run into Sherlock Holmes, and what was your impression? You know, it, it was kind of nice, uh, similar to Amy. It was with uh, with the books, and um, I uh, I read through the all the short stories. I don't know, I was probably fifth or sixth grade. Um, summer reading, we're always required to have summer reading, and uh, and I chose to to read Sherlock Holmes and read all the way through it. I can I can very vividly recall the the cover of the book. It was my father's. Um, so it was a blue canvas cover, hardbound. Um, and I just remember fondly holding that and opening it up and smelling the pages and reading through these stories that took me to to Europe in the middle of the or the end of the 19th century. It was um it was great. I mean I I I really enjoyed uh having those stories to look back on. But of course, you know, as a as a kid, um, those stories are very different than as a grown up. So as we were required, as we were doing this project to go through and reread everything, um, it was a very different take on how, uh, those stories affect you. Uh, you know, as a, as a kid, it was like, you know, like Amy was saying, it's like, you're, you're kind of want to be Sherlock and, and play those mysteries out. And, um, you know, as you get older, you see some of the more intricate elements that are within those stories that, um, that really, you know, excite all levels. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I um, mm-hmm. I recently ran across a quote by Clifton Fadiman, uh, who, of course, uh, was a was a uh, radio personality, newsman, and radio personality back in the forties. Uh, and of course, he had some run-ins with Christopher Morley at the time. I think they were on Information Please together. And uh, there's a wonderful mm-hmm. quote that I pulled from Clifton Fadiman that I, I think speaks. Uh, a little bit toward what you're going at there in in terms of seeing more uh, in the book. But going beyond that, he said, when you reread a classic, you don't see more in the book than you did before. You see more in you than was there before. And I thought, you know, putting that up against Sherlock Holmes and how we're able to constantly reread these stories and pull out more and, you know, take some kind of lens of our own experience and, and put it up against the character and up against, you know, Conan Doyle's creations. Uh, it, it just becomes a kind of a template for humanity. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And that, that quote is beautiful and, and you do see more in you and, um, you know, whether it be classics or, or specifically for Sherlock, I, I think that, you know, what, what Conan Doyle has written uh, allows you to, present yourself in those stories in a way that many other authors aren't aren't able to do um so yes it is you know the story of a detective and his assistant and these adventures that they go on but uh when you when you look at it and you you always want to put yourself in Sherlock's shoes and and with that particular character you can uh so it does no matter what 
age or, or era of your life that you partake in those novels or now the, you know, the, the, the films or, or however you, um, uh, digest those stories, you know, you really do have the ability to put yourself in there. So I, I think that that's more relevant, uh, perhaps for Conan Doyle than, than for some other writers. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, and as we heard in your introductions, you know, this whole subject is very directly connected to what you both do professionally. Jeffrey, you as a, well, yeah, theater designer, exhibitions. Um, how did, how did, um, for, for you two, let's start with Jeffrey. How did, how did, um, this particular project start? Because the international exhibition has been running for more than four years, uh, and will probably continue to run. I mean, we will talk to you about that. But how did, how did uh, you first come across this particular concept of, uh, designing an exhibition, an interactive exhibition around homes? And, uh, what was your reaction back then? Well, the, uh, the, uh, Time that we were starting to look at this was when the first um, Warner Brothers film was was about to come out. So there was a, a, a lot of spin around the stories of, of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there always have been, but it, it kind of goes in waves, and it felt like there was a wave that was coming on us. And uh, at that point in time, um, I was working at um, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and we were we were uh, looking at different. IPs that are trending that support mission-driven topics. Um, and when we started to notice Sherlock Holmes with, with that film, um, we, we started to research it more. We heard that there was, uh, the BBC show that was coming out, something called Sherlock, you know, there was uh, a, a television show in the United States that was going to be set in contemporary times with a female Watson. Um, we knew that there was, there was something going on. We're like, well, we should, we should try to be a part of this if it made sense for on mission topics. Um, at museums, you know, the, the exhibition of Sherlock Holmes is primarily um, targeted towards, uh, science museums, natural history museums, history museums. Um, so it's, it's very, you know, educationally bent. Uh, there's a, a lot of rich content. So we had to make sure that whatever IP that we chose to apply to an, an exhibition for museums would then, uh, support the mission of those specific museums. Uh, as you know, if you've read even one story of Sherlock Holmes, it's steeped in history and science and just the way in which um, Conan Doyle writes the characters using the scientific method through observation, that tie-in was very clear. Uh, so unlike some other uh, IPs that are out there, they really have to kind of force those those mission-driven topics. It was a very natural um, parallel between the stories and the uh, uh, and the, the mission driven content that we wanted to put in there. So it was, it was looking at that, doing that research. And then we reached out to the Conan Doyle estate and, um, uh, I, I moved on from MSI and, and started, uh, GMCA, our company now, and, um, and continued those conversations with John Lellenberg and, uh, and it, it grew from there. And of course, uh, Amy's company was very much a part of that development process too. So, Amy, what um, what do you recall from that early part? And and were you and Jeffrey working together at that point? Did you do this? Did this sort of happen together, or were you connected as the project moved on? Sure. Um, so, I became acquainted with the uh, Doyle Estate and Mr. Lellenberg. I believe it was in 2010. 
uh, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey's company and EDG launched um, a, a very big project at MSI Chicago, um, as Jeffrey mentioned, um, with Discovery Channel. So we were spending a great deal of time in Chicago, and Jeffrey said, I think we have another really fabulous project we could develop. Um, and so I think the first introduction was in the fall of 2010. We had dinner with John, and um, really the rest is history. Um, fell in love with Mr. Lullenberg and his passion, obviously, for uh for the stewardship he he so richly uh, envelopes, as you both know. And so it was really, really exciting just to see his enthusiasm um, as the steward of the intellectual property, Sherlock Holmes. And then I believe our develop, development process, Jeffrey, was from about late to, or 2011. I'm just trying to lose time here. We opened in Portland and premiered October of 2013. So I guess it was more like 2011, Jeffrey. I think the fall of 2011 when I first met John. Yeah, that's about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and it was really, really wonderful to hear all the connections about uh, to Sherlock in the States and specifically Minnesota where both uh, Jeffrey's company and exhibits development group is based, so that made it even that more exciting. Mm. Well, and of course, there's a um, a large Sherlockian contingent in Minnesota as well, with the Norwegian Explorers and the University of Minnesota uh, Holdings, the Sherlock Holmes collection there. So it seems like it's kind of ground zero for all kinds of experiential Sherlockian stuff. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Between Chicago and the Twin Cities, it was just, again, so yeah. surprising. Um, and and needless to say, it takes uh, it's somewhere between 60 and 100 folks that contributed to um, the development of the exhibition. Was, and Jeffrey, of course, led that. Um, and a number of those folks, as you mentioned, the Norwegian Explorers and the University of Minnesota uh, and so on, were hugely um, impactful to the the development process hmm. and the enthusiasm and putting wind in our sails because of course it's a big endeavor. I'm sure. It takes a so, lot of a lot of expertise. Can can you take us on that journey between 2011 and 2013 between when you know you you connected with the Conan Doyle estate and then when the exhibition launched in 2013 what what happened in between there and how does how does an exhibition like this come together? Uh, Delta Airlines and the Passport. <laughs> Jeffrey, you want to take that one? Yeah, I will. Um, you know, I, as, as Amy alluded to, there's a lot of travel. Um, but but you're you're right, uh, Scott. You were mentioning how the you know Minnesota had a great core of collaborators already right there. So we were able to work closely with some of the folks in Minnesota and in Chicago, and then we. We branched out from there. So the, it, in order to make an exhibition, uh, of course, this is an educational ex- exhibition. It's, um, it's rich with, with history and science. So therefore we wanted to make sure that we had our 
experts, not only in uh, Sherlock Holmes, but are experts in what developed those stories, uh, what Conan Doyle went through as he was writing those stories, uh, and also what's important for guests who have come to a museum today. So we started from that core group, um, the University of Minnesota, knowing that we uh, could have access to some of that collection. We met with them, uh, and then we started to branch out further and further, and the rings just got larger and larger. So we talked to almost... Um, all of the major collections uh, that contain uh, Sherlock Holmes, Portsmouth Library, Toronto, um, uh, the Marleybone Library, uh, we, we spoke to them just about, you know, what sort of collections we could have, artifacts that we could bring together, uh, understanding what the most um, beloved artifacts are from, um, you know, both from Conan Doyle and also the fictional character, uh, looking at the difference between memorabilia and artifact. Um, we then expanded further into the scientific support. Um, obviously, Conan Doyle uh, was trained as a, as a medical doctor in Edinburgh. We went to Edinburgh. We spoke with Royal Surgeons Hall, where he uh, worked with Joseph Bell. We, we uh, worked with their collection. So some of the, the great experiences that we had um, while in Edinburgh uh, was going you know, down behind the scenes, going to where they keep their collections outside of their small museum that they have. Um, Royal Surgeons Hall, they, they're still a school. So, you know, their museum is a classroom and you can go into this space that Conan Doyle would have been in, surrounded by these, you know, medical specimens and uh, portraits of of um, either, you know, maimed war uh, uh, veterans or um or portraits of, of famous doctors from, from, you know, centuries past, uh, these same influences impact Conan Doyle as he was there. So, you know, being able to see that work with those, uh, individuals, uh, there at Royal Surgeons Hall. We also went to, uh, the Museum of London because all of this, uh, is set in London. We're not from London. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we understood the history of London, why this was impactful at that time. Why is it that the population of London was so excited about this character Sherlock Holmes that just popped up in their, um, you know, in their, in their, uh, strand magazine. And, and they just embraced that character so thoroughly. Um, why did that happen at that particular time? So we were working with the curators at museum of London for that. Um, so as you can see, it just got bigger and bigger pulling these individual, uh, groups together uh, to become a collective that helps support the content and development of the exhibition. Back in Minnesota, we we wanted to make sure that the science that we're talking about was relevant for today. The, the exhibition teaches um, the scientific method through observation, but it's also very relevant for forensic science uh, today. So every bit of uh, research that we put in there, we wanted to make sure it tied back to forensic science work that was contemporary, what scientists were actually doing today in the field. Uh, so we worked with the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, which is also based in St. Paul, Minnesota. They, they work primarily with the FBI uh, on homicide cases. And uh, their whole team came together and helped support all of the scientific content within there, making sure that what we were telling uh, was true for today. Obviously, there's some things that Conan Doyle wrote about that are no longer relevant. Those you won't necessarily see in the exhibition, but you will see everything that is relevant. Uh, and then we have our, our creators and artists that we pulled together. Um, the designers that uh, helped design the exhibition are, you know, Broadway theater designers. We had um, uh, uh, Broadway theater composers and lighting designers, uh, storytellers. Dan Stashauer um, is uh, the, the gentleman who wrote the exhibition proper. So anything that you read within there, he wrote it. He helped tell the stories. Uh, we 
based sort of the through line of the exhibition on E.J. Wagner's book, The Science of Sherlock Holmes, just looking at how she compared uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories to real uh, uh, mysteries and crimes that happened throughout history. That was something that we really, really uh, leaned on as we were trying to develop our story. So you can see that we had the collaborators, but now we have to create what the story is to make that exhibition engaging. And of course, as, as you know, I saw when I was first reading Sherlock Holmes and what Amy did when she was young and, and reading Sherlock Holmes is you want to be Sherlock Holmes. You want to be in his shoes. So within the exhibition, creating a mystery that you can partake in, in a, in a style that is very true and authentic to Conan Doyle's writing, we permitted our guests to now be a part of that mystery and a new mystery that was alluded to by Watson in one of the stories. Um, and now you are a part of it. You're able to go in there and actually practice what you've learned from all these experts, all of these artifacts. Uh, now you get to put it into play. So you can see it's, it's a, it's a long and rather messy dynamic, um, process that gets us from an idea to a conclusion for what the exhibition is. But it, it really depends upon many, many people coming together and supporting this. And um, as Amy mentioned, you know, getting that, that wind behind our sails to, to move forward. And, you know, when you open one door, it always opens another. And, uh, and we walked through as many as we could. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's, that is a lot to take in, Jeffrey. I, I can't imagine trying to marshal all of those resources and, and make sense out of it. Um, why don't we work backward a little bit and, and unpack some of this? Um, which, which story is alluded to that forms the basis of the investigation at the exhibition? Oh, I knew you were going to ask that. There was, a, there was um, uh, I think it was a, Carbuncle, I believe there was a moment when Watson was talking about like, oh, we can't talk about this mystery that happened. Um, and it was like the remarkable worm, I believe was what it was called, something like that. Yeah, and yeah. Um, he's like, oh, well, you know, someday we'll be able to talk about the remarkable worm, but we can't. Um, and uh, and Dan Stashower just, you know, jumped on that. He's like, well, now we can. <laughs> so we did. Uh, and we created a whole story as if it were written by um, Conan Doyle through the uh, through the words of, of John Watson and, um, and created this narrative that the guests now be able to, are able to participate on. Yeah, and, and actually Dan uh, Dan's approach to this was pretty clever because he also touches on another unknown case. It was the transmutation of Isadora Persano from Thor Bridge, you know, that's sort of another one of these offhand remarks um, by Watson, but it's uh, Persano who becomes... Uh, sort of the central character in the uh, remarkable worm. Um, so there's, there's even, even there, you know, that was really clever combining those two things. Well, and Dan was great for bringing in all these sort of Easter eggs. I and mean, throughout the the exhibition, you'll see elements from stories that are tied in. You'll you'll notice the Napoleon bust broken open. You'll notice uh, all these different elements that tie back to uh, to the original writings. Yeah, and I, I have to imagine that when, when it comes to not only pulling the story together as, as Dan did, but pulling the exhibition together, you are, you're trying to cater to a pretty wide audience. You know, you want this to be universally uh, understood and accessible, but at the same time, you want kids to be able to, uh, to be able to follow the clues. So, so you're writing a mystery that has to remain uh, somewhat hidden, uh, but you need to make it 
understandable enough that kids can feel a sense of accomplishment for having figured it out. How, how did you, how did you approach that? Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting. Um, some of my background is in uh, developing the Chicago children's theater. And, and when we developed the Chicago children's theater, we, we purposely made it so that we were creating theater that any grown up would enjoy without kids, but based on children's themes. And what we realized from doing that is that kids really responded very well to being challenged. Uh, so as we moved forward with this project, we made sure that we were creating something that was both challenging for adults and also challenging for children. Uh, you'll see as you go through the exhibition that the mystery that we've created is not easy. Um, and most, not, I wouldn't say most people, but, uh, a, a solid percentage of the people who go through don't actually solve all of the portions of the mystery correctly. And that is part of the charm of the experience. And what's also wonderful too, is that kids can help grownups see what they're doing. Uh, kids are able to focus better. They're able to see things better. Um, they're not clouded by assumptions and uh, they actually oftentimes are are better at, at uh, identifying and matching clues to um, to the experiments that are that are within there. So, you know, you have this this uh, experience that both uh, supports young people and supports older people. And, and Amy can probably talk to the importance of that within museums, where we need to have um, uh, experiences that are are engaging for the entire family. And that, that's something that's fairly rare when it comes to science centers anyway, is having something that both younger people and older people can engage with together. I, I think you just hit the nail on the head. You can appreciate the uh, constituency uh, for this exhibition where the leading science museums, not only in North America, but abroad. And I'm going to go back and digress just a little bit as um, Jeffrey brought this you know, concept to us. Well, what we were looking for at the time is something that would be international, that has a strong brand, um, and then naturally would appeal to the science centers who are our constituency. And you had to scratch your head and think, why didn't anybody else think of Sherlock Holmes before we did? And I remember profoundly um, what that impact was on our friends in London. Um, who also make exhibitions that they're leading museums. And when Jeffrey and I came to them to say, we'd like you to collaborate, we're working on this fabulous international project, you could just see their jaw drop thinking, why in the world didn't we think about making a Sherlock Holmes exhibition? Um, here you had one of the oldest IPs, so rich and full of layers for the science, not just science um, either, you know, history museums and natural sciences, also, so um, yeah, it 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 is just such a wonderful um, topic for families and multi generations to explore, and it's been just that's probably one of the most very rewarding things in our work is to see how many people it touches, and just to see again the fascination in young children when they're with their parents, and like Jeffrey said, showing their parents and getting frustrated, they they, they seem to grasp it equally as well as oftentimes adults do. And it's fun when they fail, they're not afraid to fail and start all over again. Hmm. Yeah. 
So, and, and something, Amy, that you just said, like, it, it, so many different people can approach it in so many different ways, right? I mean, it, there, there are what, a hundred plus actors who have played Sherlock Holmes over the past hundred years. And, you know, so everyone has their own Sherlock Holmes in their mind. And this is actually something that we, we chose very deliberately within the exhibition was, was not to show a picture of our Sherlock. Um, the, the Sherlock in the exhibition, the lead character in the exhibition, you never see him um, because it's whoever it is in your mind. You know, it could be Jeremy Brett. It could be, you know, um, uh, it, it could be Robert Downey Jr. It could be whoever you want it to be. And I think that that's so beautiful because everyone has their own Sherlock. Everyone has their own way to approach these stories. It goes back to what we we're talking about in the very beginning where, you know, it's what you bring to the table as opposed to what the, the book brings to you. And, and that is, is really exciting within this exhibition. And I think, you know, a, a huge challenge when we were developing it, we didn't want to, you know, sort of pigeonhole this exhibition as a particular type of Sherlock. Um, but, uh, but it, I think it really helped, as you're saying, it's like it really helps allow everyone to engage healthy they choose. Well, it's quite a journey that you have created here for people, and it is so popular. The for, for those of our listeners who haven't been to anything like this, you know, it's it might be when you hear it to hear about an exhibition of Sherlock Holmes, you're thinking, okay, we're going to go into a couple of rooms, and there'll be a violin and a calabash pipe, and this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> but um, that is very far from what happens here. You know, the um, from the moment you step in, thanks to the thoughtful design, you really are in uh, the lighting, the atmosphere, the color tones, the feeling of Victorian England. And, and you start with um, the benefit of all of the work you've just talked about, particularly in Edinburgh and other places, with uh, a little grounding in Conan Doyle and 19th century science portraits of Joseph Bell, information about what was going on in medicine at the time uh, that really ground you in that environment. And then as you move through a wonderful recreation of the sitting room, but it's, but it's not just for people who might or might not know anything about Sherlock Holmes because you are encouraged to find articles that are resonant to great mo. And so for the enthusiast, for the Sherlock Holmes enthusiast who remembers Henry Baker's hat and Sherlock Holmes in Switzerland, there are these wonderful little things that you can find by observing the layout of the sitting room. And then you're off to the mystery where you get a note car, a notebook, your own detective's notebook, and you are immediately engaged in a crime scene, the staging of the, this particular mystery. And as you acquire clues and look at various aspects of those events, you learn about uh, the uh, technology of the 19th century, phonograph, telephone, telegraphy, how people communicated, ballistics, uh, newspapers, all sorts of things. And as you say, by the end of it, and it's quite a journey, a very involving journey that can uh, engage parents and children, even people who don't know anything about Sherlock Holmes. You know, you've really been on on quite a uh, a path. And then at the end, for the enthusiast, there's a, a lot of wonderful things that, that many of us will never have seen close up before from the University of Minnesota and other places, original art by Frederick Dorr Steele, uh, some original um, letters and so on from Conan Doyle, many things like that. So 
Um, you know, you've created quite a Fabergé egg here of, uh, <laughs> of things to intrigue people about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And we, we, we kind of love all those aspects and, and it's interesting. People will ask, um, or museums that we go to, they'll ask like, how long does it take for someone to get through the exhibition? And, you know, it's interesting because it, it really depends upon the person. So some people might go in and, and spend a ton of time you know, going through those first couple galleries, looking at the the uh, history and the innovations that were happening in the late 19th century and the second industrial revolution, like all these tools that are now used in forensic science and were used at, at the very beginning of, of forensic science um, back then, which, you know, again, like the, the, the moment in time when these stories were written was ripe. You know, it's like forensic science was only just starting. The police force in London, you know, Scotland Yard was very young. Um, the way that policing was happening was really shifting and uh sherlock holmes and conan doyle were right in the middle of of that time period so if that's your interest the the history of london and and you know how the police force started um some of these tools of the trade um then that whole first section is where you're going to spend all your time um you know if you want to come and see the the fictional world of sherlock holmes as you mentioned the the sitting room or the mystery uh that's a great place to spend time and then and then others are there for the pop culture uh and seeing what sherlock holmes the stories influenced uh and all of these you know films and stories and games and toys and uh advertisements and you know it's 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 everywhere. The you guys know it's it's Sherlock Holmes is a part of the fabric of our language of of how we see the world and um and it, you know we, part of our challenge was to call that out. It's like you know Sherlock isn't you know it's not just a story. It's not just a character, but it's um you know it's both a noun and a verb. You know so it's it's something that's that's really uh, very much a part of us. Uh, and you know if you're just starting to engage in Sherlock Holmes, if you have entered the Sherlock in world through um, you know the BBC's Sherlock or through uh, the the Warner Brothers uh, Sherlock Holmes films, we have that there too. You know, we have uh, Elementary was extremely kind in uh, donating uh, costumes and props from from their show, including um, you know scripts that we have from from that. The same thing with Warner Brothers; we have a page of their script and and almost all of the props that remain from the first couple films. Um, so all of those are are within the exhibition and and. Uh, you know the the BBC and and um, you know the Sherlock production team they they gave us uh, artifacts as well so we we are able to really look at the full breadth of the impact of Sherlock upon pop culture and of course the the impact of of culture and, and science upon Conan Doyle. Now over the course of the uh, the five years that this exhibition has been um, active in the public, uh, you, you must have heard from. Attendees, uh, obviously Sherlockians, experts like, like us. What to you has been the most uh, gratifying feedback or comments that you've heard? Oh, Amy, do you want to that? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, they're so consistent. Um, so I think what we've heard reinforced over and over is just how true to Conan Doyle's you know, beloved Sherlock, the exhibition truly is. I don't, I really don't think there's been an exhibition of this caliber ever. Um, it's so rich in history, in science. It's 
absolutely Jeffrey's team did such a beautiful job with the artistic presentation. Um, and then it's the perfect storm because you have all the popular culture of the resurgence of the BBC program and CBS and the books and so on. So um, there isn't just, you know, I don't think there was just one comment. I think it's just the, re the constant reaffirmation of what a brilliant project it is. And then um, it just watching the interaction of the guests, um, whether they're working alone or with families is probably what's most touching for me. And the uh, fact we often see um, uh, groups of uh, disabled uh, individuals as well participating in the exhibition because, again, it's been designed uh, to accommodate. So I think those are just more comments than any one particular comment I heard. That's, that's yeah, I think I think building on that too is is that you know you may come into this exhibition and and not know anything about Sherlock Holmes you know and and you you just happen to be at the Science Center and and you're, you're going to go through it and um <clears throat> you know for those individuals too uh, this is fully engaging and it's a great entry point into the character but it, you know it's 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 so rich with interactivity and uh, immersive environments that um, that is really it's it's really fun for everyone who goes through. I think my favorite comment um, uh, it, it's actually a, a criticism which which I just love, um, and I've heard it a couple of times where um, there are some people who go through the exhibit, they go through the whole mystery, um, you know, and there, there's a number of different pieces of evidence of this crime scene that you're supposed to evaluate and see if Lestrade uh, his assumptions and and uh, are, are accurate or whether something else is going on. So you see the stuff of the crime scene, you hear what Lestrade has to say, you go ahead and test this uh, stuff out and uh, and see if. if if, uh, if it's real or not or true or not or what else, uh, what else could have possibly happened. And, you know, as I mentioned, it was, it's challenging. So the, the complaint is that at the end of the mystery, uh, you're encouraged to go to a conclusion area where it's written very much like Sherlock would have um, uh, uh, written how he would have written it or spoken. Um, and it goes through exactly what happened uh, as a story would. So you get the conclusion there. So the, the, the complaint is like, I, I wish I didn't know the answer because I want to come back and do it again. <laughs> so it's like, you have these people who, who are like, they didn't quite get it, but they, they, they wanted to come back and re-experience it. And, um, and now it's just like so beautiful that people are, you know, not fully, uh, uh, coming to the conclusions of the mystery, but they're so engaged that, um, that they want to, you know, just go through it and, and, and re-participate and figure these things out. So it just shows you how, how much a part of that experience, uh, they were. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you should say that because for two reasons. One is that it's, it you know, this is our, uh, you know, we've been, we've been doing this podcast for more than a decade and we have another podcast where we dig into the details of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And so for those of us who really love this sort of subject matter, revisiting things, thinking about things in a different way, you know, this just sort of becomes a very enjoyable thing to do. But in the same way, that applies to the exhibition. I mean, I had, after I had walked through the exhibition the first time, I went back and did it all over again. And I already knew <laughs> the outcome of the mystery, and I didn't solve it correctly the second time. Uh, but when I went through it the second time, you know, you do see 
like in the Sherlock Holmes stories, all these other things that you might have missed, you know, this reference and that reference. And uh, it's it's just a very nice puzzle. It's it's a puzzle you don't mind going back at all I mean, and uh, revisiting again. You know, Bert, it uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, part of the uh, the grace that we say every year at the Speckled Band of Boston. Uh, there's a line in there that goes, "Children yet unborn, how we envy them." <laughs> right? <laughs> this notion yeah, of yeah, yeah, lucky, lucky, being able to re-experience something uh, for the first time. If that uh, if that could mm-hmm. be a thing, that's that's a wonderful. Uh, criticism slash compliment, I think. <laughs> Wonderful. So what's next? Um, you know, this will be at the Liberty Science Center in New Jersey. Uh, for those of you who don't know where that is, that's uh, very, very, it's within eyesight of Manhattan. Uh, it's in Jersey City, New Jersey, sort of on the other side of uh, Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. Um, but it will be at the Liberty Science Center through the end of May, May 27, 2019. Uh, lots of ways to get there. So what's what's next for the uh, – what's the future of it? That's a great question. So in our current uh, tour, we have um, an availability for two more uh, museums to host. And sometimes, like Liberty Science Center, they'll host for what we call a double booking um, in the museum community, they typically host exhibitions for 12 weeks or three months. So we basically have a six-month venue to take us through the tour, and we're in early conversations with the estate to extend the tour uh, to go international. Um, the only venue outside of North America that we've taken the exhibition thus far is um, Australia, the beautiful powerhouse museum in Sydney, Australia, and as you can appreciate, um, there is a lot of interest from other institutions around the world, so we're hoping um, to, to to extend the tour. Oh, excellent. You, you will find a, um, a, a welcoming body of uh, Holmesians in, uh, in Sydney with the Sydney passengers there, a great group of folks, and uh, I'm sure they will uh, gin up a lot of attendance for you guys. Are you speaking in Sydney? We had the great pleasure of being there already about a year, uh, year and a half ago, and and they were more than accommodating and helpful. Oh, they well, were we really wonderful to work yeah. with. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I will yeah, say that. Um, yeah, go ahead. I think Jeffrey and I are going to say the same thing. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I was just going to say, in, in every city that we've been to, there's been incredible support from the community, um, the different Sherlockian clubs, uh, individuals who want to support the exhibition. In some places, we've had uh, volunteers from, from some of these clubs come in weekly and just be there so they can talk directly with the guests who come in. Um, we have people coming in costume. We have uh, experts doing lectures. Uh, it's It's been um, humbling how impassioned the community has been around this project and uh and we're really grateful well excellent thank you both for taking the time to give us a kind of a backstage tour here the making of uh the uh sherlock holmes uh, the international exhibition of sherlock holmes uh as bert said it's uh running now through may of 2019 at the liberty science center in jersey city new jersey 
Uh, Amy Noble Seitz and Jeffrey Curley, thank you so much. Well, I was, boy, I really, you know, as we said in talking with them, um, well, I don't know that we did say it in, in talking with them, but but I certainly envy, um, you know, what they're doing professionally, designing these sorts of interactive experiences, being able to find a subject interest like Sherlock Holmes and personally engage with the start of it all in Edinburgh, Joseph Bell, to go to London, to go to Minnesota, to, you know, really wade deep into this, all this material and all this history, and then take the task of how you put it together for audiences is, uh, well, it's very much like the theater. So there you are. Well, yeah, you know, that's, that's a great point. I mean, this is, it does require staging, you know, and as, uh, as you said, as Jeffrey indicated, came from a, a kind of a design and theatrical uh, background. And, and I think as you are, you know, physically taking people through a setting, uh, and trying to tell them a story at the same time, it's just a, the perfect mix of, you know, storytelling and, and, uh, and and artifacts together. Yeah, it's happening more in the theater too. You know, the uh, I remember years ago there was a um, a Jeeves and Worcester musical that I saw mm. a couple of times, and when it in both of its stagings in the theater, the the premise of that particular. Um, musical was that you were in uh, a community that Bertie Wooster would have visited and, and you are at one of those events. So for example, a church social or something like that. So from the time you entered the theater, the signage you saw, the decorations you saw all supported that environment. And now in other productions, from the moment you enter into the theater, you know, you're sort of you begin to feel like you're in this world. And that's, you know, very much what's going on in the exhibition. Yeah, yeah, just very immersive. And, you know, I wonder what the next steps in exhibition uh, staging and technology might lead to, because as you were saying that, 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 you know, kind of immersive experience in the theater, it made me think of virtual reality and how the future of some, some exhibitions might, be remote, you know, and, and, and you might still be able to uh, get a sense as to what's going on uh, by virtue of uh, some of these VR technologies. Uh, and, and, you know, could we experience Sherlock Holmes in VR uh, in the not too distant future? Oh, yeah. No, that's a great observation. You know, and it's interesting. I mean, the, first of all, I mean, the price for going to the Liberty Science Center and, and seeing the exhibition is very, very, very reasonable. I mean, it's designed to be yeah. uh, very economically yeah. uh, achievable family, for family families friends. and so on. But, the, you know, the degree to which um, the price ticket for the theater is going up and up and up over $100 is certainly not unusual today for a particular seater at admission. I think the more you will see the experience of going to the theater – 
uh, extending so that before you get there, there might be things you do with virtual reality mm. and there might be follow on and community participation and other things. Cause I think, you know, the more, the more it becomes a, a real investment, the drive will be to, um, deliver commensurate value to people and that value is frequently measured in time you know it's not just two hours out of your life it's the day before the day after something else yeah yeah well, that's great well you know one thing that struck me <clears throat> excuse me as jeffrey and amy were speaking why has no one ever done an exhibition like this before and i think from a from a pure a scientific and educational perspective, that's correct. But let's not forget there was a Sherlock Holmes exhibition that was done in 1951 over in London <laughs> and then brought to the United States in 1952. And as a matter of fact, that is the subject, the very subject of this year's Baker Street Journal Christmas Annual uh, mm-hmm. that uh, Matthias Bostrom and, uh, and Nick Utekin have co-edited or co-written together. Uh, you know, Nick mentioned that on episode 156 and, you know, I, I keep seeing, uh, posts from the Baker Street Journal pop up on Facebook, uh, intimating that fact as well. So, uh, if you, uh, can't tire of Sherlock Holmes exhibitions, then, uh, the Christmas annual is another source of that as well. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that exhibition, as you know, kicked off uh, uh, a rediscovery, a worldwide rediscovery of Sherlock Holmes. So that's great. I'm looking yeah. forward to reading it. Absolutely. And that sound can mean only one thing. It means it's time for... Uh, the hold music. No, this is this is the <laughs> canonical couplets, uh, the little quiz program that we put together every episode to test your knowledge of the Sherlock Holmes stories. If you recall, in the last episode, we issued this couplet. In this, alas, the great wrongdoer snatcher quietly failed to add a cubit to his stature. Bert, do you know the answer to that couplet? Yes, the adventure of the blanched almond. <laughs> I have to tell you, you are getting more creative and closer every every episode. Um, but no, I'm sorry, that is incorrect. It is. Oh, no. uh, yeah, I know. It is actually the adventure of the dancing men, and we had a handful of respondents, a handful of people who answered correctly. And uh, let's spin the big prize wheel in our revolving drum over here. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, and there it goes. It's slowing down, and it lands on number 12, number 12, and that corresponds to Mark Doyle. Mark, congratulations. We'll be reaching out to you and letting you know that you won a prize from the vaults of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. All right, so that means it's now time for the canonical couplet for episode 158. Are you ready, Bert? I'm ready. All right, here it goes. When an old man's desire makes him climb a tree, Holmes thinks... You can't make a monkey out of me. 
If you think you know the answer to this canonical couplet, jot it down in an email. Put the subject line canonical couplet, address it to us at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com, and we'll enter you for a prize. Good luck. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I should have I should have picked up on that line about Hilton Cubit. When I first heard the name of Hilton Cubit, uh, the only thing I could think of was Guy Marriott. So. All right. Well, until we meet again next time, I am exhibiting as Scott Monty. Well, then I'm an exhibitionist. <laughs> I'm the exhibitional. Oh, dear. Let's just go with that. And no, no. <laughs> well, well, I'm the exhibitionist Burt Wolder. And together we say <laughs> the, games the games of foot. <laughs> the, the games of foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs>